Matthew chapter 5 this morning, Matthew 5. And if you want to plan ahead, we're going to be making some stops in Mark chapter 10, 1 John 3, and Deuteronomy 15. But Matthew 5 is going to be our main beginning place. And once again, we're going to be going to Mark 10, 1 John 3, and Deuteronomy 15 as well. Continuing our study here through the Sermon on the Mount. Please remember as we go through this, this is a message that's given to us. To the disciples, that goes back to what he says there in verse 1. As we read through this, we're going to stop and say, wow, wouldn't this be great if this is how the world acted and lived? It would be great if this is how the world acted and lived. But this is the message given to us as born-again followers of Jesus Christ. That's why when we first started this, you know, a few weeks ago, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we start out with, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, with the understanding of that is what we're supposed to be doing, is thirsting for a relationship with Christ, glorifying God in all we do and say, and realizing we're poor in spirit, we need a Savior. When that is understood, now we can move on with the rest of these lessons. Because if we don't have that baseline, then this is just all good, sound advice. But now this is the moral code that God has asked us to live by as believers. And so what we have here this morning is just practical living. We've had some pretty tough stuff before. We had anger back in verse 21. We had adultery a couple weeks ago. We had marriage last week. Now this is just practical day-to-day living. And remember the goal. The goal is pretty simple. Verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's all God asks for, people, is just perfection. With the understanding that perfection comes through Christ and through Christ alone. But with that being said, let's jump into this and see how are we supposed to be living as believers in this fallen world. Verse 33 of Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You see a lot in the Bible, a lot, is the power of your words. And you see a lot in the Bible that you can tell if a man or woman is mature in their walk with the Lord is by their words. If you go read the book of Proverbs, what you realize is that a mature man or woman in Christ can control their tongue. James chapter 3 goes into great detail on this. Your words reveal who you are. Really, your mouth is like a flashlight into your soul to see what really is important to you. Are you encouraging people? Are you edifying people? Are you uplifting them with your words? Or is there anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and wrath that's coming out? That really reveals your heart. It really reveals your soul. So what Jesus is talking about here with your words is let your yes be yes and your no be no. So what does that mean? It means simply that people should take your word at what it is. I don't have to swear on my mother's grave. I don't have to swear to heaven. And I don't have to swear to God that it's true. I don't. If I just say, yes, it happened, then you should stop and say, well, then I believe that. Yes, it happened. If I say no, then you should believe that. Then no. See, but for most of us, that's not enough. See, we have to go to one more level of seriousness. Because if I tell you yes, well, you know, a lot of people just say yes, and it means nothing. So I swear to you in my mother's grave, which I don't even know what that means. So, my mother is still living, so I can't even do it. But, you know, <laughs> swear to heaven, you swear to God. It's like, that means what you're basically saying is every other time you say yes really didn't mean as much. And if you say no, it's just really silly. As a believer, my yes is yes, and my no is no. And that's really what it's supposed to say. And that when you talk to somebody, you can trust that. You all know somebody 
that you cannot trust. If they say, oh, I'll be there, yeah, right. If they say yes, you're like, I hope possibly maybe. And you've probably had these conversations with people. And I'm just randomly picking a name here. Hey, I talked to Fred the other day. He said he'll be there. And the other guy says, yeah, we all know Fred. Yeah. You work with somebody like that. You live with somebody like that. Their yes means nothing. Their no means nothing. Now, I thought that I was pretty good on this. And I was working on the lesson the other day. And the subject came up with Dawn. And she said, yeah, you're awful on this. I said, what are you talking about? I'm not lying about anything. She goes, no, you're not lying about anything. But when you say you're going to go do something, it actually means nothing. If you say, hey, i got to get going. I'm going to go take a quick shower and get out of here. That means probably in the next two, three hours. She says, well, if I hear the water running, I know that that means you're going to go. Or if you say, hey, I'm leaving. She goes, I look down. If you have your shoes on, that means you're leaving. If you don't have your shoes on, it means absolutely nothing. Now, what do we do? We come back. Well, this is what happens. I get a phone call. I get an email. I get a text. The boys need something, whatever. But my yes and no really don't mean a whole lot because I allow other things to get in there. Like I said, you work with somebody. You live with somebody. You know somebody like this. The answer is not to make your words more powerful. I swear to you, man, I'll do it. No, just do it. Because if I know you're going to do it, then that's what your yes means. That's what your no means. The problem is we allow our words to be quite honest, to make promises that we can't keep. You don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to read a couple of verses to you here. First one's out of the book of Deuteronomy, if you're a note taker. It's Deuteronomy 23. Listen to what the Lord says about this. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay for it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed it to the Lord your God, which you have promised with your mouth. How simple is that? You told God you're going to do it? You better do it. How many of us in the midst of emotion or stress have made promises to God that we can't keep? Lord, if you just get me through this, I promise you I will fill in the blank. See, God actually takes that pretty seriously. It's what we're learning here. How about this? Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Once again, you don't have to turn there. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to repay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. Do you know somebody when they tell you a story, you're like, yeah, I can't believe that. Do you know somebody when they said, I'll be there? Yeah, I can't be there. What the Lord is trying to tell us here, very simply put, is that people are going to look at you by your words. And as a born-again believer in Christ, your words should mean something. Your yes means yes, your no means no, and that you need to back that up with how you live and how you act. We are known by our words. Proverbs 22 says this, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. That good name, that is your testimony. That is what people think of you. That is your character. That is rather to be chosen than great riches, that you have a good standing and a good witness in all that you do and all that you say. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we think before we speak? Do we think before we promise? Because that means something. we got this little strange thing we do at our house about the word promise. You've heard me mention this before. And it doesn't make much sense here on a Sunday morning at 10.30, but when you're living with three-year-olds, four-year-olds, six-year-olds, and seven-year-olds, it makes more sense. You can say the most absurd thing you want to say. You, you can say something strange, and I can't even think of an example that makes sense, but we're going to go do this, we're going to go do that, and I'm going to give you whatever you want. Are you really going to do it, Dad? Oh, you bet. I'm going to do that. 
They know we're joking. Then if they really want to know the truth, they say, but Dad, do you promise? And when we say promise, the rule is at the Irvin house, all joking stops. It has to mean something at that time. And so you hear my kids, if they go up to them, and sometimes they go up to people that don't know the rule, and they want to come up to me later and say, but Dad, I asked him, and I said, do you promise? And he said he promised. Yeah, it's a heathen, honey. They don't understand. You know, the, the Irvin rules, they don't get it. But in our house, if you say you promise, all joking stops, all absurdity goes out the window, and it means something. That way we don't have to swear to God, or I swear to heaven, or whatever. No, your yes means yes, your no means no, and your words, your words are your testimony, your witness, at work, at home, at school, wherever you're at. And God says it's your words that reveal who you are and your character. What about the next one here, verse 38? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? That was the system set up back there. It actually goes a little deeper. In Exodus 21, it was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a burn for a burn, a stripe for a stripe. That's pretty serious stuff. It makes you think before you do something, doesn't it? See, but Jesus says that's not what we're doing right now. Jesus says, actually, if somebody comes to you and they want to slap you on the one cheek, turn the other also. Someone wants to sue you, verse 40, let them have it. Verse 41, go with them two miles. Verse 42, whatever they want, let them have. Now, you've got to understand the context of these passages because these passages have been taken out of context. The context of this passage is this is personal. Personal. This is not saying that I did not have a responsibility to protect my wife, to protect my family, to protect the church. The context of this is, once again, personal. So, you are at work, you are at school, you're out in public, and someone comes up to you, and they want to do these things. You have to stop and say, okay, how do I respond? This is not about being a pacifist. This is about knowing how to respond when someone wants to possibly take advantage of you or someone is hurting you or harming you spiritually, emotionally, what have you. What am I supposed to do? Now, if you just read these passages, just a doormat, right? Just take whatever you want. Someone shows up at my house today, hey, James, it's a really nice 2009 Kia with 80,000 miles on it with two hubcaps. I think I want that. Hey, here are the keys, because according to Matthew, I just need to give it to you. Would you like to walk through my house and take anything else you want to? Is that what this is saying? No, it's not what this is saying at all. Let's look once again at the context of what we're trying to talk about here. And there's really four points that go along with this to fully understand it. The first point that goes along with this comes out of Matthew 10, verse 16, where Jesus says, Be wise as serpents, but peaceful as doves. Anytime you're in a situation, you have to seek the wisdom of the Lord to say, okay, Lord, what is the proper response in you? Not what I think, not what I feel, but in you. Be wise as serpents, but peaceful as doves. A good example of this is in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you had Paul who was about to get whipped. And Paul just kind of drops this little comment. Hey, is it lawful for you to whip a Roman citizen? He used wisdom. He looked at the situation and says, I don't have to sit here and take this. I'm a Roman citizen. There are rules and regulations here. You need to follow this. So that's the first point, is be wise. Be wise to know, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? As this person is saying things and doing things and threatening things, what is the proper response? Number two, the second point, whose stuff are you really worrying about? 
Verse 40, they want to sue you and take away your cloak and your tunic. You got to remember the law. The law at this point says this, that if somebody wants to come up and borrow my coat, I let them have it. The catch is this, they got to return the coat before evening because that coat could also be my blanket. Well, what Jesus is saying, hey, if they want your coat, let them have it. Just take it. Give the coat, give the shirt, give everything to them. That's the better thing. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them too. Once again, you have to know a little bit of the history here. You have to remember at this time, Israel's a conquered nation. So the rule was this, that if a Roman soldier came up and said, hey, I want you to carry my stuff for the next mile, the rule was you had to carry it for a mile. You stop and you say, well, I'll go with you two miles. And I always thought, why would you do that? And I remember probably 20 years ago, hearing uh, Jim teach on this. And Jim said, hey, you know what you do? You just keep witnessing for one mile and keep witnessing for two miles. And I remember him saying, if you witness so much for one mile, they're not going to ask you to go two miles. Right? <laughs> the point is, you look at it as ministry. Give to everyone who asks. It's from him who wants to borrow from you to not turn away. But this is my stuff. I'm not going to let somebody just take it or beg. They're going to they're ask to borrow it. I know what happens. He doesn't return anything. I know what's going to happen. She's going to borrow it, and it's going to come back broken if it even comes back at all. They constantly ask for stuff. They constantly, they take, this is what they know. You ask anybody in the community, they're just a taker. Okay, let's talk about this for a little bit here. First point was wisdom. God gives wisdom. The second point is, it's my stuff. Let's talk about my stuff. Here's our verses we need to go to. Let's go to Mark 10. We're going to go Mark 10, 1 John 3, then Deuteronomy 15. Mark 10. What you see in Mark 10 is this. Anything that is quote-unquote taken, God knows about. You don't have to worry about it. Mark 10, verse 29. Mark 10, verse 29. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who should not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. First off, number one, whatever I feel like I lose on this earth, Jesus says, yeah, James, you don't need to worry about that. God keeps track pretty good of what's happening. So if you're afraid you're going to lose something, you don't need to worry about that. So fine, the item doesn't come back. You feel like you're taking advantage of fill in the blank there. Jesus says, I saw your heart. I saw your sacrifice. I'll take care of it, and I'll make sure your needs are always met. Please note the wording we're using here. Needs are always met. There's a lot of people that have wants, but it's the needs that we're talking about, which takes us night next into 1 John 3. 1 John 3, please. 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. See, that verse 17, different, comp, excuse me, different translations. Mine says, who shuts up his heart from him. Some translation says, shows no compassion, has no pity. I'm willing to bet most everybody that came into this church here this morning, you don't have too many needs that are not met. Now, you may have a whole list of wants that aren't met. But needs, I bet you got something to eat at home. I bet you have a couple different outfits you could choose from. 
You may have a hole in your roof, but I bet you have a roof. I bet you most of you have some heat in your house. There's not too many needs that you don't have. But isn't it funny? We live in this society where our wants convince ourselves that they're really needs. And we have these big statements, don't we, that we get really, uh, you know, worked up about. We were at the park yesterday. It was a nice day, so we took all the kids to the park. We're just out there playing at the park. And uh, uh, Brooke came up to me and said, let's go to Walmart. Okay, why are we going to Walmart? We're just Walmart day for. And this is what, what she said. She goes, because we have no food in the house. No food in the house. Now, I saw the pantry. There's food. There's food in the cupboards. So I said, Brooke, there's no food in the house. I get sarcastic every now and then. There's no food, no food in the freezer, no food in the fridge, no food in the pantry, no food in the cupboard. And then the real estate. Well, there's no food that I want. Come on, haven't we all done that? We walk into the kitchen, and what do we say when we walk into the kitchen? The first thing you say, I'm starving. No, you're not. No, you're not starving. You may be slightly hungry because you have not ate in two hours, but you are not starving. And then what we do is, I'm starving, followed up, I can't find anything. We have our needs met. He's Jehovah Jireh, He meets our needs. In fact, he meets our needs so much. What 1 John 3 is trying to tell us here is, listen, if your needs are so bad, take a look at other people around you because maybe you can bless them. That's the heart that Jesus is asking. See, we look at these verses as, someone's taken everything from me. Well, Mark just told me whatever I lose in this world, God says I'll take care of. 1 John 3 is saying, listen, your needs are met. You could go help somebody else. One more passage here, please. Go to Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15. See, what you see now in Deuteronomy 15 is we really start getting to the heart of the matter. Right now, we can't argue with Mark 10. God will pay you back. None of you would argue with that. Probably most of us can't argue with 1 John 3, that if I see somebody in need, I need to help them. But now in Deuteronomy 15, we really get to the heart of the issue. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, stop right there. There's somebody poor in the land. Do you see what God just kind of subtly said there in verse 17? The land which the Lord your God is giving you. God gave them the land to start with. Whatever they have is from the Lord to start with. Whatever you have at your house or on your possession right now is by the grace of God. So it's not even yours. The Lord gave it to you. You shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. Now, wait a second. We as believers that love Jesus so deeply and so much, would we ever harden our heart towards somebody? I mean, we would never say things like, well, they made their bed, they need to lie in it. Well, if they would make better choices, they wouldn't be in this position. We would never say anything like that, right? We would never look down on somebody and say, you know what? If they really wanted to get better and get ahead in life, they could do X, Y, and Z. See, that's hard in your heart. You may say, well, well, no, no, James. I know it's true. I always love when I talk to somebody and we know it's true. We add gifts of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed that? The gifts in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians and Romans aren't enough. We add the gift of I know everything. And the truth is, we really don't. 
We harden our hearts. Verse 8, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. No need, not want. You're going to run into a lot of people in this world. They're going to give you a wish list. And it's a lot of wants. We don't work on wants. We work on needs. And I want to willingly lend it to you. My heart wants to do this. Remember, Jesus is not concerned about us just obeying. He's concerned about our heart. Is our heart where it's supposed to be? Do we have a heart like Christ? Okay, but I know my thoughts. Verse 9. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your eye shall be evil. Excuse me, and your eye be evil against your poor brethren, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and he becomes sin among you. You've got to know a little bit of Old Testament law here. See, every seventh year, all debts were released. So what would happen is this, and don't follow exactly. This is not the way the calendar works. Someone comes up to you in December of the sixth year. Really in a tough spot, James. Hard to find a job. I got a lot of things going on at home, etc. I promise I'll pay you back. But could, could you loan me a very large chunk of money? What they're saying here in Deuteronomy is you don't stop and say, well, wait a second. This is December of the sixth year. That means in just a couple short weeks, we're in the seventh year. And then therefore, the debt is released. And so you don't have to pay me back. So now in my heart, I'm saying, no, I'm not going to do this. Now, we don't have that system set up now, right? But what's the system we have set up now? Why would I let him borrow anything? He never returns it. Why would I let him borrow anything? It always comes back broken. He's a user. He's a taker. He takes advantage of everything. I've worked hard for this stuff. You just don't get things for free in this world. Somebody needs to teach him a lesson. See, this is the, quite honestly, verse 9, the wickedness in our heart. Verse 10, you shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give it to him. You know what that is? That is, hey, if you ever need help, call me. Please don't. If you ever need to borrow anything, it's right there, but please don't ask. See, how often do we say one thing on the outside, but in our heart is exactly what it says right here. Our heart is grieved. I can't believe he asked me to help him. I mean, last Sunday when I offered it to him, I mean, he knows. I was just saying it. Isn't that what we do? See, Jesus says, I don't want your words. He goes, I don't want your actions. He goes, I want your heart. Because the church right now is full of people that will offer up anything. But when push comes to shove and that person contacts you and says, could you, would you please? Oh, man. What I do is this. If I've ever contacted you and asked you to do something I think is really difficult, I usually say, hey, before I ask you this question, if you already want to think of an excuse, it's okay. And then I say, would you? Because I don't want anybody just to do it. I want somebody who stops and says, this is difficult, this is hard, but you know what, this is a ministry opportunity maybe to someone I've never even met before because I don't want verse 10 for you to be grieved in your heart. Grieved in your heart when you give to him because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and all to which you put your hand. I'm just telling you right now, there's this great passage about when you throw your bread on the water that it comes back to you. Anytime you open up your heart, your possessions, your finances, whatever it is, to service and ministry, God says, I will always take care of you. He always will take care of you. Why do we need to have this? Because verse 11, for the poor will never cease from the land. They never will cease. You know, we have this idea in society today, if we just throw enough money at a problem, we can fix it. 
the poor will never cease from the land. I know that's one of those statements that's not really politically correct, but biblically speaking, God says the poor is going to be with you always. How are you going to minister to them? How are you going to love them? What are you going to do? Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. Now, once again, we may be back to the point of, okay, yeah, but they're going to take advantage of me. What's the first point we said? Wisdom. God will give you wisdom. There are some situations where the most wise and the most God-glorifying thing you can do is to say no. There are situations like that. But a lot of times the Lord says, live generously. Well, it's my stuff. That's what we talked about in Mark 10, 1 John 3, Deuteronomy 15. It's not your stuff. It's the Lord's stuff. He'll take care of you. Here's our third point. The whole purpose of helping people goes back to verse 41. Witnessing. Why would you walk two miles with them? Going back to the point I made earlier that he said, it's two miles to share Christ. See, when you offer up somebody, when you get a chance to help somebody, it's an opportunity to represent Jesus Christ. It's an opportunity to look at somebody and say, I give this to you in the love of Jesus. You know how hard that is to do? Because we come in with our own predetermined standards of what is right and wrong and all this other type of stuff. And I'm not going to be a doormat. Someone's not going to walk all over me. My phrase to that always is, I'm a willing doormat. Jesus allowed people to walk over him for the sake of ministry. Paul says you become all things to all people to represent Jesus Christ. You're not getting walked on. You're saying, I'm just going to serve. John 13, God in the form of man got down on his hands and feet to wash feet. It's hard to do because we all have those things that we don't want to let go of. I shared this story with you years ago, but, but it bears repeating. I remember coming out of a Napoleon Walmart one time, and there's a guy standing at the corner. Now, I like to stop and talk to the guys that, that have the signs. Uh, need food, will work for food, what have you. And if the Lord opens a door, I like to swing by and just talk. So I you know, come out of Walmart, he's there. Uh, it's one of those cold winter days. I parked over at Frisch's, walked down, and started talking to him. He needed help with some stuff, so I give him some stuff. And I say, you know, I give this to you in the love of Jesus, you know, just trying to represent Christ. So we're sitting there talking, just trying to see where the, where the God takes the conversation. Now, have you heard me mention this before from the pulpit? I love earmuffs, okay? It's just a weird thing. I don't like my ears being cold. hate my ears being cold in the winter. So I got my earmuffs on. We're talking outside. It's the cold. It's the winter. He looks at me. He goes, nice earmuffs. In my heart, I say, no way. Uh-uh. <laughs> I, I will give you every penny in my wallet, but you can't have my earmuffs, man. I'm not doing it. I was going to cling on, hang on to those earmuffs. So we kind of, I said, yeah, nice earmuffs. We're going back to the talking about this. A few minutes later, man, those are really nice earmuffs. And it's one of those times where you have those really long, lengthy conversations with God that really only take a second, but it's like, like time stops. Lord, I'm not giving him my earmuffs. Why? Well, because they're my earmuffs. My ears will get cold. Okay, where did you get the earmuffs from? Okay, God, you know, you have this long conversation. So I say to him, you want my earmuffs? You can have them. That's what I said in my heart. Don't you dare take my earmuffs. Now, he didn't take them. Thank the Lord. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. He didn't take them. But to me, when I go through these verses, that, that, that's me. I'm clinging to earmuffs. I could have went into Walmart and bought another pair for 10 bucks. I'm clinging to them. I don't want to let them go. They're mine. They're my stuff. The sacrifice of my ears being cold. Good golly, aren't we spoiled? And really what it comes down to, what Jesus is trying to tell us here is, listen, it's not your stuff. Just represent me. 
It's all about ministry. It's all about proclaiming Christ, who he is, and glorifying God in all we do and all we say. So our four points, the first one was be wise. The second one, it's my stuff. The third one is be a witness. The fourth one is, well, I'm still ticked, and I don't want to do it. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than the others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'm still ticked. I'm still bothered. Jesus says, fine, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Yeah, but you don't know what they're doing. You don't know how to take advantage of. You don't know. Fill in all the blanks there. Romans 12 says what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That phrase, vengeance is mine, is repeated three different times in the Bible. You've heard me say this many times. If you say it once, it's important because God said it. If he repeats it twice, you better be paying attention. By the third time that God is repeating a verse, you better be marking that thing. Vengeance is mine. Back to the example of the Apostle Paul. Remember, there was a man, the coppersmith. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord repay him. Paul says, I'm going to let this go and just let the Lord repay him. What are you supposed to do with your enemies then? Verse 44, love them. Bless them. Pray for them. Guys, it works. I don't know what else to tell you other than this really honestly works. When you have somebody you cannot stand and you're praying for them, it changes your heart. Remember, the purpose of prayer is not changing necessarily the situation. It may change how you deal with the situation. So the person is still an awful person. They haven't changed, but all of a sudden you see them through the eyes of Jesus. And the real question is, can you love them like Jesus loves them? Can you forgive them like Jesus forgives them? Can you look at them like Jesus looks at them? You can only fully experience and understand love towards others when you really understand it yourself. When you really understand what Christ did for you on the cross through love and forgiveness, all of a sudden it's like, now I can look at people through those eyes. But guys, it works. I know it works. I've had people I've had a very difficult time with. And dare I say the thoughts and the emotion and the anger in my heart towards them was so sinful and so black and so ugly No, it was never presented publicly, but it was in my heart. And I can remember trying to live these verses. Okay, Lord, give them a good day today. Yeah, right. All of a sudden, it's like, okay, Lord, give give them a good day today. And And I had a person I really was struggling with for a long time, and the other day I caught myself praying for them and saying sincerely, Lord, thank you for them. It's like, oh, wow, Lord. You took ugly and flipped it around. Now, Satan still wants to get back in there, don't get me wrong. But when you're praying for somebody, it's really hard to be angry at them. When you're blessing somebody, it's really hard to be angry at them. Lord, bless them. Lord, be with them. Lord, help them. And I know, and we say this every time, you don't know what they've done, you don't know what they said. I know. I don't know what they've done to you. But I know what I've done to Jesus, and I know that Jesus is willing to forgive me. And I know what it says in Ephesians 4.32 that I'm supposed to be kind and tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ Jesus forgave you. So I look at them through the eyes of Jesus. I look at them through this. And here's the catch, people. I firmly believe, this is my opinion, take it or leave it, God will always put one unlovable person in your life. He always will. To remind you 
of what it's like to love Jesus. And excuse me, what reminds you of what Jesus loves like with other people. So you have that one unlovable person in your life. And here's the catch. Once you learn to love him, guess what he does? He just brings a whole other unlovable person in. It's this ongoing cycle. That's what it is in my life. Where it's just like, okay, Lord, now I'll learn to love this one. Because it constantly reminds me that I'm supposed to be Christ-like in all I do and say. And Lord, I just want to love the people that you bring into my life. Can I love them like Jesus loves them? Can I forgive them like Jesus forgives them? Can I look at them through the eyes of Christ? Can I pray for them? Can I ask the Lord to bless them? Can I realize that it's a witness and a testimony and no one else on the outside may know it, but it's a battle that's in your own heart? Because it goes back to what we said a few weeks ago. God is not looking for outward obedience. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. Remember back in Psalm 51 when we first started this study a few weeks ago. David, we quoted David, where it says, The offering, the sacrifice of bulls is not what you want. But what does God want? He wants a contrite spirit and a broken heart. See, we could all come in here this morning and say, Whatever you need, let me know. Oh, I love you. I have nothing against you. We could all watch our words. But in our heart, are we really saying, okay, Lord, I do want to serve. I do want to love. I do want to love them like you do. I want it to be about you. Now, it's easy to do when they're nice back to you, verses 46 and 47, that even the tax collectors do that. If somebody is nice to me, loving to me, affirming to me, appreciative of me, it's really easy for me to love them. Jesus is saying, can you do that when they're not, though? Can you love the person that never compliments you? Only says something discouraging, disparaging. Can you love the person that doesn't even talk to you? They ignore you like you don't even exist. Can you love the person that is outright mean to you? Can you love the person that just does this, this, or this? Christ says, can you love them like I love them? Can you pray for them? That's where the real battle in your heart comes. And then we finally start to understand what it means to be like Christ in all that we do and all that we say. Guys, if we can come forward here for the final song.